Good, good morning, Covenant College. It's good to see you all. Uh, Covenant College, as uh, many or most of you know, is an agency of the Presbyterian Church in America. And some years ago, another agency in our denomination called Women in the Church, uh, and we all love women in the church, right? Uh, endowed some funds that allowed Covenant to establish an annual lecture series, one that was charged with the task of building up the church and bolstering an informed lay leadership among both men and women by addressing serious contemporary issues that are challenging our world. Uh, we used to call these the WIC lectures, now we call them Res Publica. Uh, and these are part of the annual Res Publica lectures, Latin uh, for public affairs or public issues. Um, we hope that these lectures each spring will challenge and equip our students to address public issues thoughtfully and faithfully. We are excited this year to welcome Dr. Tara Isabella Burton, who is addressing a topic taken from her 2023 book, Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. There's also a one credit hour class that she began last night, continues this evening, and also tomorrow morning. Even if you're not registered for the class, uh, you're welcome to set in. Uh, Dr. Burton is uh, trained in theology, uh, but she's a professional writer. She's the author of two nonfiction books and three novels. Most recently, uh, the novel Here in Avalon was just published last week. We've been excited to hear from her and engage in her thoughts. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tara, Tara Isabella Burton. Um, good morning, everybody. Thank you all so much for having me here. It has been a delight uh, addressing some of you yesterday morning, uh, getting to know some of you in class last night. I remain impressed and astounded by your energy and engagement. Uh, four hours uh, from 6.30 to 10.30 of reading uh, Montaigne uh, is not uh, an easy or, or small feat, but you all uh, made it look, your engagement and your joy in the material uh, was, was such a delight to witness. So um, to recap for those of you who, who were not at chapel yesterday, um, Self-Made, uh, my, my book, is largely critical of this idea that I think of as part and pa parcel of modern Western secular culture, that we not only can, but should make ourselves, create ourselves, develop our personal brands, live our best lives, be whoever we want to be. Uh, there's a 101 different ways of expressing the same idea. And I have strong concerns, as some of you heard me say yesterday, about this idea that we can just simply create ourselves, that we are not creatures made in the image and likeness of God for a particular purpose uh, that might transcend us, that might be beyond what we know, and simply that purpose is for us to decide. But today, uh, I don't exactly want to walk that back a little bit, but I want to explore together what we might want to hold on to in this idea of self-making, in this idea of self-creation, even in this idea which seems uh, at first glance so like something we would recoil of a, of a personal brand. What is the difference between self-cultivation, making ourselves better, in having passions we want to pursue, having a vision of life that we want to work towards, and the kind of 
empty, uh, for-profit posturing that so many of us see so often on social media. So um, I want to start out by a, a, with a little bit of, of an, an anecdote by, uh, about one of my, my favorite, but perhaps most complicated, historical self-makers that appears in Self Made, uh, the Anglo-Irish poet, playwright, uh, novelist, and uh, noted wit, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, I love Oscar Wilde. Yeah, let's give it up for Oscar Wilde if you want. Yeah! So, uh, it's London. It's 1892. And everybody who's every, anybody in London is talking about one thing. Green carnations. Nobody knows what green carnations are exactly, what they mean, what they signify. There's a, a rumor that it has to do with certain sexual transgressiveness. It's, there's another rumor that it has to do with being an, an esthete and living life as art and worshiping beauty. But nobody really, really knows. It's just everybody starts wearing them. And the only thing that anybody knows that it somehow has to do with Oscar Wilde. He's, uh, at this time, uh, his new play, uh, Lady Windermere's Fan, he's uh, drumming up publicity for it. And so um, one, one night uh, at the premiere of Lady Windermere's Fan, uh, it seems, and the historical record sort of differs, that a bunch of people, including maybe Wilde himself, just show up wearing these beautiful, dazzling, artificially colored carnations. And uh, finally, people, people sort of uh, ask, like, what is it? What does it mean? Why is everyone wearing it? It starts to take off. Suddenly, every young dandy is wearing one. And someone asks Oscar Wilde, um, why? Why? What, what is this? And Wilde tells uh, his, uh, his friend, this painter, Cecil Robertson, well, I want a good many men to wear them. People will stare and wonder. They'll look around the theater and see every here and there more and more little specks of mystic green. And uh, they would ask themselves, what on earth can it mean? What does it mean, uh, Cecil Robertson asks. Nothing, Oscar Wilde says. And that's what nobody will guess. And I am telling the story because there is something about this idea of uh, something that doesn't mean anything that I find, uh, I now find kind of unsettling. As a teenager, I devoured Oscar Wilde. Reading quick Dorian Gray at 13 was one of the most formative experiences of my life. Still, still up there. Uh, and yet, this idea that on the one hand, Wilde writes so poignantly about the hunger for beauty, the hunger for meaning. We know he does on his deathbed that that hunger for beauty and meaning leads him uh, to, to Christianity, to, in his case, the Catholic Church. But at the same time, the sense that nothing really means anything, nothing really uh, intrinsically has any value, this thing means whatever we make it mean, seems at the heart of a, of a slightly more troubling way of living, the idea that we can just decide what things mean without reference to a transcendent whole. Uh, this is the kind of mentality that, for example, one of Wilde's characters, uh, the sort of villainous Lord Henry in uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray, says that, you know, to be good is simply to be in harmony with oneself. Um, individualism has the higher aim, he says. Modern morality consists, and he, he's very negative about this, in accepting the standard of one's age. But for any man of culture to accept, accept the standard of his age is a form of the grossest immorality. So this idea that we can just decide what morality is, that custom, that other people, that social rules are restrictive, seems to be uh, kind of normative. So then the question is, 
is there still something we can hold on to here in the Wildean vision of living life as art or in the broader idea that life is something for us to choose and to shape? And I think that actually, uh, despite this, this threat of meaninglessness that sort of hovers over the proceedings, there are sort of two main things that we should uh, fight for and hold on to in this vision of, of human freedom, freedom, although I'll argue not unbounded or untethered human freedom. And the first is that at its best, the, the self-making tradition, uh, both in American life and in sort of uh, Western life more broadly, does offer uh, one very uh, uh, perhaps straightforward political opportunity. Uh, it's so now, I think, enshrined in the American cultural consciousness that we forget how novel it was at the time. The idea that where and how we are born, the circumstances of our birth, uh, our, 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 our race, our class, our, our families of origin do not define us and do not limit us when it comes to pursuing certain kinds of dignity and to pursuing a life that is uh, well-lived and free of certain kinds of deprivation. And I think that the, uh, the best kind of spokesman for this vision of self-creation as a, a statement about human dignity uh, is, is uh, the, the uh, American uh, abolitionist and writer and lecturer Frederick Douglass, uh, actually one of the first proponents of the phrase, the self-made man. He didn't coin it, but he gave a series of lectures with that name, uh, arguing not just for good old-fashioned hard work, although he did think that hard work was at the core of the American dream, but also a kind of defense of the American experiment. Now, Frederick Douglass, uh, a black man born into chattel slavery, uh, might, might not have seen uh, in the American dream, uh, and of course at, at the time, the first time he, he gave this lecture was, was before the abolition of slavery, uh, he might not have seen in America uh, a dream, a possibility for all Americans. He might have seen, as his contemporary uh, John Brown did, that this, this sort of American experiment is poisoned from already, from inception, uh, by the moral stain of slavery. But he had a, a different approach, a different perspective. For him, he believed in this, what he saw as a quintessentially American vision of self-making, not as a means for you know, individuals to make bazillions of dollars, as the ter term self-made man later came to be used, but as a place where human dignity was not based on who your father was. It was not based on who, uh, the color of, of your skin, it was not based on anything except this kind of spark of dignity in the, in the human self. Uh, when he talks about self-creation uh, and his own sense of self-making, uh, in his autobiography and in other lectures, one of the most moving passages is often, uh, at least for me, is when he talks about an encounter he had uh, while still young and enslaved, he doesn't uh, escape until 1838, uh, with a, uh, his, his legal master, the person considered his legal master at the time, uh, hires a young Frederick Douglass out to uh, a, a notoriously violent man, Edward Covey, who uh, was, was known for being so violent that he would break the, the morale of the enslaved people who, um, who, who in his, in his uh, charge. Uh, and Covey treated Douglass the way he treated all of the other men under his supervision, whipping and beating him regularly. But one day, 
Douglas fights back and he wins. And he writes in his autobiography that this is just a turning point for him, a sense of himself as a dignified being. Uh, and he is, he is you know, a, a being, a kind of, perhaps even a divine being, a being in the image and likeness of God. I was a changed being after that fight, he wrote. I was nothing before. I was a man now. It inspired me with a renewed determination to be a free man. Um, and there's, at that time, in 18, September 1838, he disguises himself as a free black sailor, gets on a steamboat, escapes north. He chooses for himself a new name. Uh, his, his birth last name, Bailey, was assigned to him on the plantation. He chooses uh, Douglas, actually after a character in a Sir Walter Scott poem. Um, and his, his self-creation, his self-cultivation, the education that he gets for himself uh, in slavery at a time where that was not possible for him, his vision of um, self-cultivation, not just sort of for personal success, but because there's a way of living a virtuous, educated, good life, a life of a citizen in a polity, is something that he, not only does he want to pursue, but he thinks is at the core of what all Americans should be pursuing, that self-governance is not just something for uh, sort of a government as a whole, but something that individual people and individual self-cultivation can help to support. It's a kind of virtue ethics. You govern yourself, you cultivate yourself, you work on yourself, and then you're able to create a society where we all work together, governing our own worst impulses in order to have a successful democracy against the backdrop of centuries of tyrants and kings. Now, I think that there's um, a lot that perhaps, uh, as modern readers, we might, we might quibble, quibble with or debate. He, you know, there are questions there, unresolved questions about the nature of individualism or hard work or is hard work always going to lead to success and what about the people to whom it doesn't? And all of those questions are very real and very palpable. But at the same time, I think the best of Frederick Douglass's uh, vision of self-creation, of the self-made man, and, and it was men at the time, of course, later on, uh, that category does expand, um, is one where, in his own words, America would, would, was, or at least one day soon could be, a place where any man, again, man in his words, quote, could be, whether Caucasian or Indian, whether Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-African, could become a self-made man. Uh, in his, uh, one of his editions of this lecture, Self-Made Man, he directly quotes a poem by a, a minor poet called Robert Nichol called True Nobility, uh, where, and this, this, this poem reads, if manliness be in his heart, he noble birth may claim. We ask not from what land he came, nor where his youth was nursed. If pure the stream, it matters not the spot from whence it burst. And I think that that, that sense that there is something to our humanity that is not simply synonymous with the facts of our birth, that is not simply synonymous with the things that we do not choose, uh, is something worth holding on to. And, um, you know, that I feel like when we talk about someone as inspiring as Frederick Douglass, when we talk about a particular political question, uh, that, that comes to the forefront. But what about Oscar Wilde? What is, what is a dandy like Oscar Wilde, famous for you know, his writing, but also for his beautiful clothing and wit, have to do with this sense of irreducibility. Uh, and I think that even, even Oscar Wilde, perhaps a, a little less than Douglas, has something to teach us about 
uh, a particular vision, and that's a vision of the self as not reproducible in an increasingly uh, technologically driven era as the 19 late 19th century was, and indeed as our own age is now, where everything feels reproducible, everything feels mass-produced. The idea that trying to assert that there is something about you that is different, that is an individual, that is special, that is worthy, uh, that comes from something real too, and I think that's worth holding on to. I think a lot of times when we think about Oscar Wilde or other uh, dandies of the 19th century, uh, it's easy to forget that they're, they're rebellious not just in the sense of they're a, a little outré or they have slightly scandalous personal lives, but they're rebelling against uh, incredible social and cultural and technological change. They're living again, often in cities like London or Paris that are in the wake of the Industrial Revolu Revolution, drastically transforming, drastically modernizing. Suddenly there's department stores on every block. There's advertisements everywhere. Uh, this is the sort of dawn of the advertising age, of the newspaper age. There's a one British journalist uh, sort of size in London that this, as soon as a house becomes tenantless, the next day shall see it covered to the very chimney top with advertisements. Uh, they, someone even says that uh, half of our love letters end with an eloquent appeal to run to some cheap grocers and buy, buy a pound of his best food. So suddenly there's a world where everything feels like it's being mass produced, everything feels like there's advertisements everywhere, people are being, being kind of pressured to buy things, to buy the latest consumer products to be, to fit in with a certain standard of middle class and upper class, middle class living. And this anxiety uh, for, for the dandies, I think is something that uh, I certainly can relate to. And I think that many people who have grown up in an internet era, even more suffused by the sense that everything is reproducible even more suffused by the sense that everything is or can be an advertisement. You know, I scroll my Instagram and half the time, like, there's this dog I like to follow on Instagram. He's very cute as a Pomeranian. And then his owner got really into SpawnCon because the Pomeranian got too popular. And now instead of looking at this cute dog, it's, it's a dog, but it's now just the dog with, with, with dog food. It's all advertisements all of the time. You know, it, and this is a sort of very normal thing to happen in the social media age. You, you like someone, you follow them, and, you know, whether it's a, a three months later or six months later or a year later, suddenly their popularity turns into something monetizable and something that starts out organic becomes an advertisement. And uh, it's not, and, and uh, for me, the kind of promise of a certain kind of creating one's life as a work of art is, is an imperfect, uh, flawed attempt to get at a bigger truth which is that, uh, and I think that as, as, as Christians, we have actually language and resources and a vocabulary to help us with this question. There is something about being human, that we are in the image and likeness of God, that we have a soul, that we are not distinguished, that, sorry, we are not indistinguishable from other human beings, that each one of us is known and loved by God in our usness, in who we really are, rather than simply as a set of facts or a set of uh, bits of biographical data or, or our social media profiles or anything. There is something about being ourselves uh, that makes us uh, worthy, that we, we, we do not need to be worthy of love in some abstract way. We are worthy of love because we are ourselves, because God loves us. 
And I think that that promise is something that is sort of, I don't want to speculate about Oscar Wilde's deathbed conversion, but I do think that that hunger for our own affirmation of being ourselves as not reducible, as not reproducible in an era of technology is, is a lesson that at their best, even the dandies like Oscar Wilde can teach us. Um, so there's, um, I guess I wanna, I wanna conclude with this, uh, this sort of tension that I think is uh, incredibly important when we talk about creating ourselves or living our best lives or any of it. And that's sort of what does freedom, what is the relationship of human freedom to human purpose? Uh, we know already, I think many of us wrestle with the fact that we are simultaneously kind of mortal animals. So much of our life is about things we don't choose. And yet we also have this inc incredible, dizzying, terrifying capacity for, for freedom, for choice. Uh, and we might choose to do anything at any moment. I mean, uh, the, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard talks about the sort of dizzying anxiety, the precipice of all the possibilities we have as human beings. And I think that that freedom does have a, a place to be appreciated as part of our human nature, even to be celebrated as part of our human nature. But only if we understand our purpose as not being something that we are free to decide for ourselves. That what we are for, what we are put on this earth to be, the responsibilities we have to God, to one another, uh, to, our, to our communities, to the natural world, to, to the entire lattice of creation, are responsibilities that don't necessarily fall under human freedom. How we address those responsibilities, how we act as we think best, often discerning in very, these very difficult moral questions, those, are, those fall within the realm of freedom. But there is, I think, a that freedom can only be best expressed when we think of our purpose as something beyond ourselves, something that we do not choose, even as our own freedom gives us sort of license to try to figure out what on earth it is. Um, so I, I want to um, kind of leave you, um, actually, let me, let me rephrase that. So this, this question of sort of, of freedom and facticity of, of purpose and how do we figure out how to navigate our freedom in an era where it seems dizzying, to me, it has to always come back to one thing, and that is, are we able to see in others the full humanity, the dizzying freedom, the entire kind of autonomy and agency and interiority that we ascribe to ourselves? Uh, this is a question I ask myself a lot as a novelist. Um, being both a novelist and a theologian, I sometimes find myself going back and forth and worrying about the power of art and worrying about the dangers of art and worrying that, you know, if I tell a story, does that mean that I'm kind of imposing myself on another person? You know, our story is dangerous. And yet, I think as, as a writer, as well as as a theologian, those moments where encountering the other, another person, another person who is as free and as bound as I am, allows me to assert not only my own irre irreducibility, not my, only my own irreproducibility, irreproducibility, uh, but what it means to be human, that this is a wondrous thing, 
that all of us have, that all of you in the room have, that all of you on this earth have. And being able to kind of encounter uh, the dandy dream that of a certain kind of freedom in another person, I think, is another way that we can put, uh, we can stop ourselves from going too far into the green carnation direction. So um, I want to leave you with a, a poem I love uh, by the Christian poet Jared Manley Hopkins, uh, precisely because uh, it's a poem about thisness usness, the way that things have some quality in themselves that is worthy of dignity that we do not need to ascribe to money or power or beauty. So uh, I'll, I'll leave you with this and then I'll invite you for a prayer. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame as tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring like each tucked string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors each one dwells, selves, goes itself, myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Um, I'd like to invite you all now to, to join me in a prayer uh, of, of gratitude for the strangeness, the unfamiliarity of all of the people we love and know and don't love as well as we should, but probably should love better. Uh, and I kind of invite you all to, to thank God for just how weird being human is. Amen. Thank you all so much.